Michael Keaton, Maggie Q, and Samuel L. Jackson headline the just-released espionage movie, The Protégé. This is Tom Pizzotto from Spy Movie Navigator here to give you our quick-fire, no-spoilers review of the movie, The Protégé. This movie was released on August 20th, 2021 in the U.S. and Canada. It will release in other theaters around the world through October, with the DVD premiering at the end of October. Our goal of the Quickfire podcast is to make sure there are no spoilers in this podcast. We'll talk about the plot, but we'll say less than what the trailers, IMDb, and the Lionsgate website do. We'll talk about the actors, the movies that may have influenced parts of the protege, and a few other things. So let's start with the plot. The main plot of the movie is that an assassin named Anna was rescued as a child by an assassin named Moody. She has to get revenge for a murder, which forces her to meet yet another murderer named Rembrandt. Anna and Rembrandt have a very interesting relationship in this movie. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about that in in a few minutes. Now, this movie is a bit of a departure for what we normally do here at SpyMovieNavigator.com. We mostly focus on espionage movies that involve a government agent. Think about James Bond, Jason Bourne, Mission Impossible, Harry Palmer, and the like. Well, in this movie, there is espionage, but it's by assassins who have no government role. It feels a little bit closer to the 2019 movie Anna, although technically Anna was a government assassin, but she was an assassin first, as opposed to a regular, what we think of as an agent. The irony here is that the main character in The Protégé is named Anna. Now, since this is an espionage movie, multiple locations must be involved. So we have Bucharest, Romania, Vietnam, and London as the key locations for the movie. Now, the protege has an R rating due to violence. Most spy movies that are mainstream shoot for a PG-13 rating, but this one earns its R rating. There are some nice plot twists, and there's a lot of death in this movie. Remember, all of these characters are assassins. This movie moves forward with the women as assassins or agents that we've been seeing in spy movies lately with things like Anna, Atomic Blonde, and Red Sparrow. And we'll most likely see in No Time to Die with the character Nomi. Now, one of our goals here at Spy Movie Navigator is to highlight how a scene in one movie influences another movie. Sometimes we don't know where the trope started. Sometimes we do. One of these that we don't know where it started is that a few of these deaths in this movie occur by somebody twisting somebody's neck and trying to break their neck and killing them. Now, we've talked in earlier podcasts about how you see that a lot in movies, but it's very unlikely that you'd kill someone by twisting their neck. You can hurt them badly, but it's unlikely that you'll be able to kill them. And we see it a few times in this movie. Another scene that is influenced by earlier movies is one where a live electrical wire is used to kill someone. We've seen something similar in the James Bond movie Goldfinger actually twice. Once in the pre-title sequence when the lamp or heater or whatever that thing was was thrown into the bathtub, and once when Bond electrocutes Oddjob. We actually like that way of killing someone in movies because this can kill a person, unlike the neck twist. We talk about that in more detail in our podcast on the Goldfinger pre-title sequence. Now back in the protege, there's a scene when somebody jumps while holding onto a fire hose as it unwinds from its reel to help navigate a jump down an open staircase. So the staircase wraps around an opening in the staircase. So there's a, an opening from the top to the bottom. There's a scene in Born Identity where we see something similar, although a fire hose isn't used, but there is the jump down that open staircase. So it kind of reminded me of that when we saw it. Another scene has someone being fired at through a ceiling. We've seen that in multiple movies. I can think of Mission Impossible and some of the other movies that you've seen where that type of shooting happens. And another thing we see in way too many spy movies, including this one, 
is people firing their guns and never reloading. I mean, there's a protracted fight in this movie where people are firing a lot of bullets and you never see them stop to reload. This is unfortunate because many of the fights are actually done pretty well. Okay, there's one more thing that is a trope that's used in a couple spy movies that's used here in The Protégé. And we have to remind you that our goal with the quick fires is to have no spoilers. So instead of talking about it here, we're going to push it to the end of the podcast after we kind of say goodbye in the podcast. We'll warn you again and tell you that we'll do the spoiler where we're going to talk about the movies that influence this particular plot twist. We won't come right out and say what the twist is, but if you know the three movies, there's really only one trope in there that all three of them have. So (laughs) you might be able to figure it out. So we'll leave it up to you whether or not you want to listen to that. So we'll push that off into the end. All right, so let's move on and talk about the cast of The Protégé, which is very good. The three leads are played by Maggie Q as Anna, Michael Keaton as Rembrandt, and Samuel L. Jackson as Moody. That's a great start to a cast. And the supporting cast includes Robert Patrick, David Rinton, and Patrick Malahide, who James Bond fans may remember as the Swiss banker in the pre-title sequence to The World Is Not Enough. Now, Maggie Q is excellent in this movie. Now, I'd first seen her in Mission Impossible 3 and have been a fan ever since. You may also know her as the title character of the TV series Nikita or as Hannah Wells in the TV series Designated Survivor. Now, we've read that they were trying to bring her back into Mission Impossible, but they've always ran into a scheduling conflict, so they haven't been able to do it. We wish they were successful with that. If you look at the six actors we mentioned, Maggie Q is age 42 and is the youngest by a lot. This fits the role of Anna very well because Anna must be old enough to have a lot of experience as an assassin to be considered one of the best in the world, but not too old to be believable. Anna must be about this age. The movie jumps from 1991 to 2021, so that 30-year gap would be about right from the age she would have been in 1991. So we think that Maggie Q is an excellent hire for the role of Anna, not just because she's very good in it, but she fits it age-wise very well. And that number 42 is kind of interesting to me because if you think about James Bond with the exception of Sean Connery, the average age of the last four actors who've played Bond was 42 and a half when their first Bond movie came out. Pierce Brosnan was 42 when we first saw him as Bond in GoldenEye. And Martin Campbell, who directed GoldenEye, also directed The Protégé here. So having the lead be age 42 makes a lot of sense. So why are we talking so much about age? Well, as we said, Maggie Q is the youngest of the lead actors. The average age of the other five actors that we mentioned is 71 years old. So this is not a young cast, and there's quite a bit of action in the movie. Somehow they pulled it off. I think it was just because of some excellent stunt work. That said, and I like Michael Keaton a lot, I think he was too old for his role in this movie, only because of the relationship his character Rembrandt has with Anna. Michael Keaton is 27 years older than Maggie Q, so parts of their relationship seemed like a stretch to us. Michael Keaton gave a great performance and played the part well, as he usually does. He had that right, just right amount of cockiness for the way Rembrandt was written. We just think he was too old for the way they designed the Anna-Rembrandt relationship. That said, there is some great dialogue between Rembrandt and Anna kind of reminiscent and even taking it a little further than what we get with some of the Bond and the Bond women quips that go back and forth between those characters. It's really well done here in this movie. It's just the age difference is a little weird to me here. 
Another thing about Rembrandt that I really liked, he has a lot of characteristics that are right out of James Bond, except that he works for a bad guy instead of the government. Now, we don't want to give away what those are. When you see his character on screen, the way he dresses, the way he talks, see if you can pick up on what we're talking about if you're a Bond fan. And then, what can you say about Samuel L. Jackson? With the exception of Snakes on a Plane, I can't think of any of the 200 or so movies that he's done that we haven't liked. And the protege is no exception. He's age appropriate for the role, and the role almost seems to have been written for him. Many of his lines felt like he was playing Jules again in Pulp Fiction, so he gets some of the classic Samuel L. Jackson sarcastic quips in, and we think that's a really good thing. He does that so spectacularly. We also wanted to quickly talk about the costuming in this movie. Maggie Q has talked in numerous interviews about the red dress she wore in Mission Impossible 3. Colleen Atwood was the costume designer for Mission Impossible 3. Now here in The Protégé, it's Karen Wagner who did the costuming for the leads. And she did well with what she did with Rembrandt and with Moody. But her costumes for Anna are fantastic. There's just the right of wow when it's needed. And let's face it, Maggie Q looks good in most costumes she wears. Karen Wagner did a great job with the wide range of costumes that Anna has to wear in this movie. She's involved in a bunch of different situations that require different outfits. And so Wagner did a great job. We also see in many spy movies a bunch of high-priced luxury items. And the protege follows suit. There are a bunch of high-end cars. There's a really cool, rare Gibson guitar. There are some really extremely rare first-edition books. And a lavish charity dinner. There are also a few references to food, and there's even a product placement shot of a La Cornu range in the kitchen. If you don't know about La Cornu, their ranges start about $10,000 US and can go up to about $500,000. It looked like the range they showed in this movie was from their Chateau line, which would have put the minimum price point at around $50,000 just based on their configuration. That's just what I could really look at in a quick glimpse of it. Our guess is it was even a higher price item than that, but it was a really nice product placement for them. All right, so we've talked about scene influences, the cast, the costumes, and a few other things, but did we like the protege? Well, for the most part, we say yes. However, in the middle of the movie, there is a lull. They show some beautiful scenery, but that part dragged for us. I mean, it really dragged for what felt like about 10 minutes. It might have only been five minutes. I didn't time it. And for a movie that is only an hour and 46 minutes, we were surprised that there was this lengthy lull in the middle. It's the part where Anna goes to try to find one of the character's sons. That could have been handled with a line or two somewhere and not had the scenes and not lost anything for the movie. In fact, might have improved the movie. However, they do pick up the pace again. And for the most part, we like the rest of the movie. The protege does have some nice twists that were well done. But part of the ending was very predictable, given one of the movie's twists that came right before it. If that twist hadn't happened, it probably wouldn't have been predictable. We don't want to give it away because it's an important twist to the plot. Leave us a comment on that. It'd be interesting to hear if you thought the same thing. If you'd really been paying attention, you might not have been taken in by that big twist I talked about in the first place. We do a lot of video editing here at SpyMovieNavigator.com, and we often take apart scenes frame by frame. Now, we couldn't do that here because we were watching it in the theater, but we do watch very, very closely the way the frames come by. And there were maybe 10 frames worth of one scene that had us thinking, this isn't right. 10 frames is almost nothing. It's less than a second. It's probably less than a third of a second and maybe even less than that. But it was something that we did pick up on. 
Now, our guess is most people don't probably watch movies the way we do when we know we're going to do a podcast on it. So our guess is you would have missed this, which is good because it could could have spoiled the twist for you because the big twist wasn't as big a surprise for us because of this like 10 frame sequence. We think it was actually just a poor editing job that let us catch this. And if you don't catch it, the twist is a good one. Now, besides the predictability of part of the ending, the ending was almost three different scenes. It wasn't as strong as we had hoped for the rest of the movie. There's a charity party towards the end, and from that point forward, we thought the rest of the movie was predictable and not very unique. This was disappointing because in general we liked the movie, but it was sad the ending wasn't stronger. Now, this is also a movie that we would prefer to see on a big screen in a theater instead of streaming it at home or watching it on DVD. There's a lot of action, and we prefer to see those types of movies in a theater because bigger is better, in our opinion, for those type of movies. Yes, you can have a nice big screen TV, but it's still not the same experience as in the theater. So before we wrap this up, please remember that we have what could be a spoiler coming up after my closing comments. We'll warn you again when we start. So let's wrap up this quickfire by saying The Protégé is an espionage movie worth seeing. It's not the best, but it's definitely not the worst that you'll ever see. It isn't the same type of spy movie that we normally talk about here on SpyMovieNavigator.com, but it's well done with a very good cast. It's directed by Martin Campbell, and that's almost always a plus. Okay, we can forgive him for The Green Lantern. All right, so this has been Tom Pizzotto from SpyMovieNavigator.com. You can check out more of our spy movie podcasts on your favorite podcast app. Our show is called Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. We also have videos on YouTube under the same name. Finally, join our Facebook group. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, too. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Keep listening if you want to hear what might be that spoiler if you connect the dots that we lay out. We won't directly give it away, but if you connect the dots, you'll probably figure it out. So stop listening if you don't want to be spoiled. You've got fair warning. This could be the spoiler, and I'm going to start that now. There is a very important plot point in The Protégé that appears to be directly influenced by the James Bond movie You Only Live Twice, the 1936 Hitchcock movie Secret Agent, or even the Melissa McCarthy movie Spy. The same trope happens in all three of those movies, and it happens here in The Protégé. If you know at least two of those three movies and you think hard, you can probably figure out what it was, because it's the only trope that we can think of that happens in all three of them. In our podcast on You Only Live Twice, we mentioned that the scene in Secret Agent influenced the Bond movie. If you didn't figure it out, then watch The Protégé and see if it comes to mind when you get to that part of the movie. It was a pretty strong correlation there. So that's it. We don't want to say any more and give it away directly. So we hope that helps you. Again, thanks for listening. We really appreciate it.